Well, good morning, church. Again, it's great to be with you. I prefer gathering in this restricted capacity. Uh, I would take this over, you know, teaching the Bible in a room by myself in front of a camera any day of the week. Uh, but there are some things that no matter how restricted we get, uh, just never change. I mean, some of you are quite comfortable in this social distance environment, uh, given your historical reluctance to want to sit on the first couple of rows. Uh, so the 20 feet that exists between me and you, that just seems about right. Uh, so I feel at home <laughs> with the distance between us in this moment. I want to welcome those of you who are tuning in from our first ever live stream gathering. Thank you for doing so. We hope your heart is being encouraged and, and that you are feeling a part of all that God is doing in our midst as he continues to work where you are uh, right now. For we know that although we are uh, restricted in our movements, that we are limited in the ways in which we can associate with one another, that, that Jesus isn't. And that Jesus is still on the move, even when our movements are not. He is still building his church. And he builds his church through the ministry and the proclamation of the gospel. And so what we're going to do today is what we always do when we gather together, whether it's in an unrestricted capacity, a restricted capacity, a virtual capacity, we're going to open up our Bibles and we're going to see the beauty of the Savior in its pages. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those open, turn them open to 1 Peter chapter 3 to the passage our friend James read for us a moment ago. And, and we're going to look at this passage that presents the beauty of Christ in such a way that provides, uh, that is capable of providing balm to our to our souls when we are enduring various forms of suffering. This is a passage that as we kind of take in its realities and we think them through, we're going to find fear and despair being replaced by joy and hope. We're going to be people who are telling a different story to a world gone wild and to a situation gone mad, when, where people are hurting in all kinds of ways, where you and I are hurting in all kinds of ways. This is a passage that as we take in, it's the gospel realities that are presented to us here. We're going to turn out something far more compelling, something far more eternal than perhaps what's being turned out in other places from other sources. And so 1 Peter chapter 3, what I want to do in this text is just identify four features of the gospel, four features of the gospel narrative that, that we rally around as a family of faith, four features of the gospel narrative that we have put our faith and our hope in as followers of Jesus so that our lives are being transformed and conformed more into his image. And, and these four features consist of the crucifixion of Christ, as you'll see in a moment. It consists of the proclamation of Christ, as we'll talk about. It consists of the resurrection of Christ. And it, lastly, will consist of the exaltation and the victorious reign of Christ, which we will see in a moment. But let's look first at the crucifixion of Christ. It's an incredible way to open the passage in verse 18, where Peter reminds his readers that Christ also suffered. Now, I love the word also, because Peter is writing to Christians in Asia Minor in the first century, who are suffering as a result of their faith in Jesus. They are having a hard time navigating the world that is, that is. And so Peter's writing to help them to stand firm in the grace of God, to encourage their faith, to, to spur them on further in their fellowship of Jesus. And so Peter starts in verse 18, Christ also suffered. That's a powerful word to Christians who are suffering for doing good. If you look at verse 17, Peter made this statement, for it is best, better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And he was tapping into the experience of the believers in the first century. And then he turns the corner in verse 18. And he reminds them, look, what you are experiencing, 
Jesus likewise experienced. One of the most remarkable things about the Christian faith and the gospel that we believe is that we have a Savior who can empathize with us in the midst of our sufferings. We have a Savior who knows what it is to suffer, not in theory, but he knows what it is to suffer through experience. I was hosting a family worship time in my home not too long ago, and we were talking about how God took on flesh and he became human and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus. And we were talking about Luke chapter 2, verse 40, that, that spoke of how Jesus grew physically, but he also, he grew in stature, he grew in wisdom, and he grew in the favor of God. And my son Asher, who's six years old, asked the question, how can Jesus grow and learn if he's God? And as a father sitting at the head of that table, trying to love the question, I don't know if I can answer it in a way for you to understand, but I'll give it a shot. And so I began to go into the hypostatic, no, I'm just kidding. I began to talk to him about, about what it mean, meant for God to take on flesh. What it meant for God to become human. What motivated him to do so? Now, part of what motivated God to do so was to nurture empathy and sympathy within his own experience for those who likewise suffer and those who likewise have a hard time. I'll put it this way. If you were to read stories about COVID-19 and how it affects the human body, you might get a picture of how hard it can be for people who might contract that disease. And that might cause you to, to maybe sympathize a little bit by way of your imagination. But if you were to con contract that disease yourself, then suddenly your knowledge is going to move from data. It's going to move from, in some sense, theory. It's going to become internalized and experienced. And your ability to empathize with those who are hurting is going to grow. Well, one of the reasons God took on flesh and he walked among us, one of the reasons God became human and he set aside the advantages he had of being God, Jesus was so that he might learn, not by way of theory or not from afar, but so that he could learn through experience what it means to suffer, what it means to die, what it means to be hungry, what it meant to grow tired. Part of why God took on flesh and became human was so that he could experience the human condition and empathize with sinners and sufferers like you and me. But that's not the only reason why Christ suffered, right? There was more to it than that, for Christ didn't suffer just so that he could empathize with us. Christ suffered so that he could rescue us. That it's not empathy we need so much from our God, it's eternity that we need from our God. And so Paul, Peter would remind us of this when he says, for Christ also suffered, but here's what he suffered for. He suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you and me and sinners like us to God. You see, more than empathy, we need eternity. And so when Jesus suffered and he was crucified and he died on the cross, it was so that the way may be open for you and I to step into relationship with God by faith. We're told in the moment of Jesus' crucifixion that there was a curtain in the temple that separated, uh, that represented the separation between holy, righteous God from unholy, unrighteous people like you and me. But in the moment of Jesus' death, the gospel story tells us that that veil tore from top to bottom, representing the way that Jesus was bursting open for you and I to step into relationship with God so that we might be rescued, that we might be brought to God. So there was purpose in Jesus' crucifixion. The purpose, yes, it concerned a little bit of empathy and ability to sympathize with us. But most importantly, the purpose of his crucifixion was to bring us to God, was to tear that veil down so that we will no longer be separated from God, 
but we can sink into relationship with God that will last forever. And so that's why we put our faith in Jesus. That's why we don't depend upon our good works. That's why we don't point to our own achieved levels of self-righteousness. It's why we point to Jesus who died the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, there was a book written by a man named Robert Coleman titled Written in Blood. And he tells this moving story of a, of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. And the doctor explained that she had the same disease that the boy had conquered a couple of years prior. And so he was drawing the connection between the two and made it clear that her only chance of recovery was for a transfusion to come from someone who had conquered that disease. And since the two children had the same blood type, the boy was the ideal donor. And so the doctor asked the boy, would you give your blood to Mary? Now at first, Johnny hesitated. His lower lip started to tremble. But then he smiled and said, sure, for my sister. Soon the two children were wheeled into the hospital, hospital room. Mary was pale and thin. Johnny, robust and healthy. Neither spoke, but when they met, Johnny started to smile. But then as the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, Johnny's smile started to fade as he watched the blood flow out of, flow out of his body and through the tube. And when the ordeal was kind of reaching its conclusion, when it was almost over, his voice started to shake, and he looked at the doctor, and he asked this question, Doctor, when do I die? And it was only then that the doctor realized that Johnny had hesitated while his lip trembled when he agreed to donate his blood. It was only then that the doctor realized that Johnny thought giving his blood to his sister meant giving up his life. And so in that moment, he made this great decision to give himself for the sake of one that he loved. Now, fortunately, Johnny didn't have to give his life for his sister. He didn't have to die for that procedure to work. But there is a dynamic where Jesus had to die for us to be rescued, where we had, he had to die for us to be saved, that we needed blood better than our own to atone for our sins. We needed the righteous to give himself for the unrighteous. And this is what Jesus did in his crucifixion. He lived a perfect life of obedience so that when he went to the cross, he went as the righteous one, the righteous person. And he took the place of unrighteous sinners like you and I so that we may be rescued, so that we might be brought into relationship with God. And so the crucifixion of Christ, that feature of the gospel, it speaks to purpose. It speaks to purpose when you think about Jesus' empathy, but then it speaks to purpose when you really think about Jesus' substitution, that he was crucified for our sake. And when you think about your own sufferings, and you begin to ask questions like, can anything good come from what I'm going through right now? You want to look to the cross. Because what the cross declares about purpose in the midst of our sufferings, purpose in the midst of our pain, when we look to the cross, we are reminded of the worst thing, the very worst thing that did happen became the very best thing that could happen. As God flipped the script on the crucifixion of Christ, he flipped the script on the sufferings of Jesus so that we may be saved, that we may be brought near to God. So you have the crucifixion of Christ, but then the second feature that pops up in verses, at the end of verse 18 all the way to verse 20 is the feature referred to as the proclamation of Christ. Now, if the crucifixion of Christ speaks to purpose, the proclamation of Christ speaks to planning. Now, when you step into those verses and you look at verses 18b all the way to verse 20, you're getting into one of the most 
if not the most obscure passage of Scripture in the entire New Testament. One of the reasons why we're committed to walking through books of the Bible like we do here in our faith family is so that we deal with everything in it. And so even though there may be a tough text or an obscure text or a difficult text to understand, we don't bypass it, we don't ignore it, we by grace run right through it. But given the obscurity of this text, we want to handle it in humility. We want to handle it with charity as we recognize that there are people who have loved Jesus, who've taken different stances on this passage, who've understood it differently over the course of human, uh, of the history of the church. It was Martin Luther who said of this text, a wonderful passage it is, but a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so I do not know with certainty what Peter is getting after. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's an obscure text, and I'm grateful for Luther's example in recognizing that. One of the things as disciples who take the Bible seriously, we don't shrink back from texts like this, and we don't pretend that there aren't tough texts in the Bible. We humbly address them, and we hold our positions on them with charity. Now, you think about this text. Part of the obscurity concerns the nature of the proclamation that we're getting after. And the nature of the proclamation concerns three types of questions. One, when was this proclamation given? Is Peter referring to Christ somehow preaching through Noah in the days of Noah just before the flood? Is that what he is referring to? Or is he referring to a proclamation that took place between the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ? And option number three, is this a proclamation that took place in the ascension of Christ as Jesus was ascending into heaven to take his seat at the right hand of the throne of God? And so when is a big question. Now, personally, my position on this text is that this was a proclamation that took place in between the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And there are several reasons for that. I won't go through all of them, but a couple of them is that I think placing it in between death and resurrection kind of follows the logical sequence of this text. It just kind of traces the narrative features or the gospel features naturally. But then there's also that phrase when it says that or went. It says that Christ went somewhere to make a proclamation. So that word, I think, uh, discounts the idea that Christ was preaching through Noah back in that day, and that's a reference to this. I think this is a unique moment that either happened in between the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ or as the ascension was taking place. I personally landed between the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, who was he proclaiming to? We're told that he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. Now, Spirits in prison, the word spirits all throughout the New Testament always refers to angels and demons. It is never used in reference to human beings like you and me. So we kind of, we reject the teaching that has popped up from time to time that says Jesus gave dead human beings a second chance at salvation and that that's what this is referring to. No, we don't believe that Jesus was going to wherever he went to proclaim this message in order to evangelize. In fact, the word for proclamation is the word caruso, which means to announce. It means to declare. So wherever Christ went to proclaim something to these spirits in prison, which are most likely demonic forces that were imprisoned and incarcerated by God sometime after the flood or when the judgment of the flood came. This is a reference to a day that happened back in Genesis chapter 6 in the first four verses of that passage. It's one of those stranger things texts in the Bible uh, there, there are some strange things in the Bible. Genesis chapter 6 ranks probably top of my list of strange, th strange things in the Bible. But it describes this moment where fallen angels, these demonic forces, um, 
mated somehow with human beings and they had some progeny, some, some, some type of kids, and these, and these creatures just wreaked havoc in the world. And they helped kind of speed up the, they accelerated widespread, unparalleled, unparalleled evil in the world. Part of the reason why God flooded the earth is because this was happening. And when God judged the world in that way, and some, somehow he incarcerated these demonic forces, he put them in a type of prison where they are waiting until the final day of judgment where God will banish them to hell forever and always. I draw this from 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, where we're told God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. And so Christ proclaimed something to these spirits in prison, but what was it he was proclaiming? I don't think it was the gospel message saying, if you repent and believe, you can return to heaven. I had a friend and mentor in seminary named Dr. Robert Smith Jr. And he preached a passage, he preached this text one day in a, in the, in a most memorable way. He titled his sermon, Going to Hell for All the Right Reasons. And his point was that when Christ went to wherever he went to proclaim to the spirits, he went for the right reason of declaring his victory over demonic opposition and evil forces. So this proclamation wasn't so much evangelistic designed to persuade anyone. This proclamation was an announcement where Christ declared his victory over sin, Satan, and every demonic force in the world. This is why we look at a passage like this and we should be encouraged that Christ is victorious over evil and that God's plan of redemption cannot be stopped. It cannot be sidetracked by any force in the world. No matter how strong or powerful they may be, Christ defeats them all. And this was a purpose that was anticipated long before this moment. If you remember the Genesis account, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Immediately after the fall of human beings, God is engaging Adam and Eve and the serpent who was Satan, and he lays out what's going to happen. And one, in one moment in Genesis 3.15, he, he spoke of one who would come from the seed of the woman, the, the Savior, the Christ. And he would come to crush the head of the serpent, that the serpent may strike his heel, but the, but the Savior would crush his head. There's a philosopher at Yale University named Peter Kreft who uh, imagined a scenario where uh, this happened, and he articulates it in a way that's memorable, and I want to share it with you. He asks the question, or he encourages us, suppose you're the devil. Now, that may be hard for some of you. It may be easier for others. Suppose you're the devil. You're the enemy of God, and you want to kill him, but you can't. However, he has this ridiculous weakness of creating and loving human beings whom you can get at. Aha! Now you've got hostages, so you simply come down into the world, corrupt humankind, and drag some of them to hell. When God sends prophets to enlighten them, you kill the prophets. Then God does the most foolish thing of all. He sends his own son, and he plays by the rules of the world, and you say to yourself, I can't believe he's that stupid. Love has addled his brains. All I've got to do is inspire some of my agents, from Herod to Pilate, to Caiaphas, the Roman soldiers, just inspire them and get him crucified. And so that's what you do. So there he hangs on the cross, forsaken by man and seemingly forsaken by God, bleeding and crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do you feel now as the devil? What do you think you would feel in that moment? 
Well, he says you perhaps would feel triumph and vindication. Of course, you couldn't be more wrong because this is his supreme triumph and your supreme defeat. He stuck his heel in your mouth. You bit it and that blood destroyed you. That's the flow of the gospel in this text. It is the crucifixion of Christ giving way to the proclamation of Christ to the evil forces in prison, declaring that he has defeated them, declaring that the ways they have opposed him and opposed his people, they are falling flat. And so he's announcing victory. And he encourages you and I to make that same proclamation. This is why there is a close connection between the preaching of the gospel and spiritual warfare. This is why when you stand to proclaim and announce what God in Christ has done for sinners like us, you can expect to be opposed by demonic opposition. You can expect voices to rise up to discourage you. You can expect voices to rise up to distract you. You can expect voices to rise up to try and keep you from doing what you were called to do as a follower of Jesus who proclaims the reality of Christ crucified and risen. There's a close connection between proclamation and spiritual warfare. This is why I ask you to be praying for the preaching ministry in the life of our church. Pray that the enemy would not gain footholds in different areas. Pray that he would not use people in ways that he tends to do to discourage and to distract and to deceive and to unnecessarily cause conflict and contention with. Recognize the connection between preaching and proclamation or proclamation and spiritual warfare. This text should embolden us. This text should encourage us. It reminds us that our God wins, and it reminds us that the enemy and all of his minions will lose. And so the proclamation here speaks to planning. It says that God had a plan from the beginning to bring salvation through this odd work of a crucified and risen Christ, and now he advances that message through the foolishness of preaching, according to 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. That we proclaim the gospel, which is folly to those who are perishing. But for those who are being saved, the gospel is the power of God. And so we announce the victory of Christ whenever given opportunity to do so. But then the third feature of the gospel, the third feature of the, narrative gospel, of the gospel narrative refers to the resurrection of Christ. Now, if the crucifixion speaks to purpose and the proclamation speaks to planning, the resurrection of Christ speaks to permanence. You see this in verse 21 when the resurrection of Christ is referred to there. And you know that when Jesus was dying on the cross and he was breathing his last breath, he cried out those words, it is finished. So you may have wondered, well, what was finished in that moment? Now, of course, we know those words to apply to the atonement, that the work of atonement is complete. Jesus died once for sins and sinners like you and me. And his death is never again to be repeated. That work was completed. But there's also a sense when Jesus said it is finished, there's a sense in which he was saying that his sufferings are over. The suffering he was enduring was coming to an end. When he declared it is finished, we should take heart in the fact that Christ's suffering was temporary, and his resurrection was going to give way to an eternal glory. Christian, what this means for you is that your sufferings are temporary. Your sufferings will only last for a little while. What this means for you is that the resurrection of Christ has changed the playing field, 
And he has made a way for you and I to move towards glory and hope so that we may even have the audacity to rejoice in our sufferings because Christ is risen. We can rejoice in our sufferings and say, look, this hurts, but it's not going to beat me. This is terrible, but it's not going to torment me forever. One day, my sufferings are going to give way to glory because they are temporary. And the life that Christ provides me with is a life that lasts forever. Paul would speak to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, for our momentary, get that momentary, temporary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So we think about the resurrection of Jesus and the permanence that that communicates to us. Realize that when Jesus resurrected from the grave and he showed up to his disciples who were discouraged, who were worried about the future, do you understand that he was giving them a glimpse of their future? He was reminding them that, look, you are going to follow in my wake. My suffering has led to resurrection and glory. Your suffering will too. And so we take heart in the midst of our sufferings. We think about the things that are unseen. And what is unseen right now is the reality of heaven. It's the reality of glory. We look around and we see bodies deteriorating. We look around us and we see people hurting and sad and grieving we look around and we see anxiety and depression and various forms of suffering. Those things are evident to everyone who is conscious. But we don't just look to that. We look beyond that to that which is unseen. The unseen realities of glory. The unseen realities that have been secured permanently by way of the resurrection of Jesus. We think about heaven. We think about what life is going to be like when all is made new and we are dwelling with Jesus forever and always. Now heaven is so wonderful and it is so glorious to think about that when you read about heaven in the scriptures, rarely do you see positive descriptions. And the reason why you don't see positive descriptions is because we can't positively describe something so great. And so what we have to do or what the writers of the New Testament had to do was they had to use negative terms. They could only really talk about heaven by talking about what it wasn't. And so they would use a lot of negative. Well, it's not like this and it's not like that because you and I can look at the sufferings around us and say, well, heaven's not going to be like that. I don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but it's not going to be like that. So you get to a passage like Revelation chapter 21 and you get this glimpse of heaven that, that John gives us in the scriptures and he writes these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away because they were temporary and the sea was no more. Now sea in that text represents chaos, confusion, suffering, strife, saying all that is no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And then get this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every tear that you shed in response to the suffering that you are enduring, God himself will wipe away. That day is coming. And then he goes on. Death will be no more. Just let that sit on you for a moment, Christian. Think that through. Death will be no more. Grief, gone. Crying, 
gone. Pain, no more. Because the previous things, the temporary things, have passed away. Suffering has given way to glory. This is the hope of the resurrection. This is the gospel feature that we want our hearts to be encouraged by in this moment. That just as Jesus' suffering gave way to glory, you and I, our sufferings will give way to glory too. And that brings us to the fourth and final feature of the gospel. The fourth and final feature of the gospel narrative in this text is the exaltation of Christ. Now, if the crucifixion speaks to purpose, and if the proclamation speaks to planning, and the resurrection speaks to permanence, the exaltation of Christ speaks to power. It speaks to the fact that our God reigns and rules victorious over sin, Satan, and death. This is where the text ends in verse 22. It says that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers all subject to him all under him. The exaltation of Christ means that Jesus reigns supreme. He is the supreme authority in the universe at the right hand of God, and the right hand of God is the ultimate place of power and prestige. It is the ultimate place of authority in the universe, and this is where Jesus is. He's reigning above the fray of a fallen world. He's reigning above the fray over everything in creation. This is Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted him, referring to Jesus. God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is ascended, he's exalted, and he's at God's right hand. Now think about this, Christian. Spiritually speaking, you are with Christ in that position right now. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. Jesus also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ so spiritually speaking, we are right there with him. And by faith, we can live above the fray of life in a fallen world. By faith, we can realize certain aspects of the victory that he has accomplished on our behalf so that we do not have to live in fear and we do not have to live despairing all the forms of suffering that may come our way. We don't have to live in fear despairing all the forms of spiritual warfare that might come at us. We can live by faith above the fray, recognizing that where Christ is, we are with him too. And there is power in that. There is power in that for the believer. So yes, Jesus suffered. He suffered in an excruciating way. In fact, the word excruciate comes from the, it means to come from the cross. That Jesus suffered in such a unique way, a new word was, was coined to describe it from the cross, excruciating suffering. Jesus suffered in that way. But after crucifixion came proclamation. It came resurrection. It came exaltation. That Jesus' suffering was leading somewhere. And Christian, your suffering is leading somewhere too. You will never suffer in vain. There's not a single tear that you will drop that will fall to the earth in a vain, useless fashion. 
just as Christ's suffering gave way to glory, yours will too. And so what we take from this text is that we should live without fear. We can live without despairing. We don't have to fear sin, suffering, demons, Satan, death. None of that can defeat us. They can certainly annoy us, but they can't defeat us as we journey through the world that is en route to the world that is to come. So we take heart, we take refuge in Christ. Now there's a reference there in verse 21 to baptism. And Peter draws an analogy between what happened for Noah and the eight people who were with him when the flood came, they ran into the ark and God spared them. God saved them. And he drew an analogy between that and what we just witnessed in Emmy's life with, with baptism. And the analogy isn't so much that the ritual of baptism may rescue us from sin, Satan, and death, and all those things. That the ritual of baptism in and of itself, the, the washing of muck from our physical bodies, that that in and of itself is, is going to benefit us for eternity. He's saying, no, what this represents is a, is a disciple's pledge. It's the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It's the pledge of a person who is taking refuge in Christ the way Noah and his friends took refuge in the ark. And as they went into the ark, they were rescued from judgment and all the chaos of the sea that was rising around them. And as you and I take refuge in Christ, we too are rescued from judgment and all the chaos that surrounds us as the waters rise in the world that is. And so when a disciple is baptized, they are making that pledge they are pledging their faith in Jesus for other people to see and to sense and to be encouraged by. This is why every single Christian should make this pledge. Every single Christian should be baptized, should go public in this way. And so if you were in this room today and you've never been baptized, you should be. Encourage us by making that pledge. Encourage us by following an Emmy's example and, and sharing your story with us and then Making your pledge to God in this particular way. Showing, look, I'm taking refuge in Christ. And what's true of him is now true of me. And I'm going to love that all the days of my life. So if you haven't been baptized, let me encourage you to email me, andrew at hallowschurch.org, and give me the joy and the opportunity to talk with you about baptism and lead you in that direction so that you can make a similar pledge. If you're listening on the live stream and you're in that same situation, perhaps you've come to faith in Jesus, but you haven't gone public with that pledge. You haven't encouraged others through your story, through your example of being baptized. Let me encourage you to email me, andrew at hallowschurch.org. Give me the opportunity to, to chat with you, to talk with you, and to lead you in this direction so that we might see the gospel illustrated as often as we're able. able that we may be reminded of our union with Christ as often as possible. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the features of the gospel that are comforting to us in days like these. Thank you for the crucifixion of Christ. Thank you for the proclamation of Christ. Thank you for the resurrection of Christ. Thank you for the exaltation of Christ. We praise you in this moment for what you have done for us. And we are living by faith in you because you are trustworthy, you are good, you are kind, 
You are rock steady. God, we love you. We thank you. And we pray for all of these things now in Jesus' name.